Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Uh, oh, by the way, somebody had mentioned to me, I think there's some sort of athletic contest on TV tonight. I don't, I don't, I'm not always into that kind of stuff. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't even know who the teams are that might be playing uh, this evening. Oh, excuse, oh yeah, excuse me, real, real quick here, I gotta... My socks just fall down all the time. It's really, really weird while I'm preaching, you know. Hey, buddy. Uh, okay. Uh, you, you can send me your emails later. Okay. Good. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and open up to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 15. The book of Mark, chapter 15. I told somebody before the service, I said, this is really weird because it, it feels to me uh, like we're in the Easter season because we've been studying the end of Jesus' life. And leading up to this point, for those who haven't maybe been with us, we, we just went through the really, the really bad trial put on by the Jews of Jesus where the Jewish leaders condemned him. And then it rolled into the Roman trial of Jesus, which was also a very unfair trial that was um, controlled by the, the whim of the crowd as they were screaming for Jesus to be crucified. And even the idea that, as we talked about this, that if we had been there, we might also have been among those people shouting, crucify him, as uh, they were deceived just by the moment that was going on around them. And so as, as I was thinking about today's sermon, to me, the idea is this is, we're going to talk about the cross. The cross is the best, worst thing ever. The cross is the best, worst thing ever. I mean, like for what it accomplished for us, the best thing that could ever happen for mankind in all of eternity. For what Jesus went through, the worst thing that ever could have happened for our Messiah in all of his life. And it was, it was his pain that bought us peace. And that's the difficult thing about this whole deal. In fact, right when we start off, we're going to see a study of contrasts in Mark chapter 15, beginning of verse 16, where we see that there's laughter uh, in the mouths and the minds of some, while there's grief in the mind of our Savior. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So this is a moment when around 600 Roman guards are called in to publicly mock Jesus. And, you know, I don't, I mean, there's a part of me that looks at this, and I think these have to be among the most vile men in all of creation to look upon the face of Christ and then, and then just mock him and hit him and spit on him. But there's always this thing in me that reminds me, like I too was among those kind of people at one point in my life. And so I do need to be careful about the judgment I would wish on others because there was a point when I deserved that kind of judgment as well. But it's still very painful. And I can't help but think, if you were a Christian, you you're, you're love Jesus and you were following him around during this time, this would have been a horrible moment of life. Because remember, the Christians at that time, they didn't know. They didn't know what was going on with Jesus. They didn't know that this was going to purchase our redemption. The only thing they felt like, probably, was that God had lost Satan had won. 
Messiah had been destroyed. It, this is the most horrible thing ever. They had no idea what was to come. So, so here now as we enter into this, just kind of vicariously through them, just this whole idea of the, the pain that they would have been carrying as they watched all this help happen to Jesus. It would have been brutal. And this crucifixion stuff, it's a nightmare for everyone. I mean, the whole act of crucifixion, because I was thinking about this, this is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And I, I literally tried to do this. I, I was thinking about who would I picture as like my, the worst guy in all of history, right? The worst human in all of history. And I had a, mind, a name that came to mind, which I won't share. I'll let you think of your own person. And then I thought, of all that goes on with crucifixion, uh, because preceding, in Jesus' case, preceding his crucifixion, um, they scourged him, is the word that was used, where they, they took this multi-strapped whip uh, that at the end of all the straps had the uh, bits of bone and metal tied into it, and then they whipped him, and as they whipped him, they, they caught into Jesus' flesh and then ripped it open as they pulled it back and they beat him multiple times which would have exposed his muscles which would have exposed his organs and so by the moment we get to hear I mean his body is just beat up I mean it's just really sad and so as a believer seeing this processing this you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy it's a nightmare and, and two, as a Jew, you would know what the Old Testament said about those who are displayed publicly at death and after death, that those kind of people are considered cursed by God. That's what the scripture said in Deuteronomy. In fact, it's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to share that with you because it connects to the crucifixion. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And I think this verse is important. So, so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So God revealed his law to his people, which was a reflection of his character and his will for mankind. And, and man was incapable of living up to the hundreds of laws uh, that were given to us. And so with the failure came condemnation. So with condemnation came a need for forgiveness. And forgiveness was purchased through a blood sacrifice. And that would happen every year. And then, but the, here's the problem. Right as soon as you sinned after that sacrifice, you were guilty again. And so there was no lasting sacrifice that could remove sin. Jesus was the lasting sacrifice. His uh, was uh, the, the curse. And we're going to talk about what that curse means as we get to what happened to him on the cross. But it was, it was foreshadowed in the garden where Jesus is praying and, and he's saying, uh, Lord, I, you know, would that this cup would pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so... Now we're stepping into the, the consequences uh, of that curse. So let's continue on now as we read a little bit about our joy in the midst of his pain, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. All right, so stop there for a second. So we have this guy, Simon of Cyrene. So Simon is from northern Africa. That's what we know. That's where uh, this of Cyrene is about. It's kind of eastern Libya. Uh, you'll use your maps on your phone to look up where that is so you'll know exactly where he came from. Uh, but the Jews had been relocated there, at least some of them. And so he was living there among um, some expatriate Jews uh, who dwelt there. And he's probably come back for the Passover, which good Jewish people would do is they would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so he's just kind of minding his own business when he comes upon this scene. And, and the Romans used this crucifixion stuff to deter future criminal activity. So they literally would take these people that they had whipped and beaten and were headed for execution, and they would march them through public areas. And they wanted you to look at them and think, this is horrible. What a nightmare. How horrible is this? Because they would say, if you betray the Roman government, this happens to you. 
So it was a huge deterrent to crime. And so they would be marching them through. So they're marching them through. Here comes this dude. He's just walking through, and he sees them, and the Romans realize that Jesus is struggling. And why wouldn't he be? I mean, he is so beaten up physically at this point. He probably has very little strength. He's probably dehydrated. He's probably um, quivering uncontrollably. Uh, he's in shock. And, uh, and Simon just kind of stumbles into this scene. And the Romans look at him and they realize that Jesus can't do this. Like, so what they would do with the criminals is they would have them carry, not normally the whole cross. They would have them carry the cross beam of the cross. Because if you think about Jesus is going to be on this big cross overall and it had to go on the ground far enough to, so that you had uh, a security in the, the, it would have been a big old long thing. So he's not dragging all that thing with him. Uh, but he is doing the cross beam. And I don't, I don't know what a cross beam weighs. I'm sure somebody's done the math somewhere. Uh, but I consider myself a reasonably healthy male. And if you threw that on my shoulders, I bet I'd be struggling. Then you take a man who's been whipped like almost to death, literally, and you put on a, I mean, Jesus would just have no strength. I mean, he is struggling so bad. And even with the, the whips of the Romans trying to drive him along, I mean, they're not, he's not going to move but so fast. And so by the time Simon steps up accidentally in the middle of the scene and a Roman guard points to him and says, you're going to carry this beam for him to where we're going. Uh, I mean, what a weird thing. And then there you are and you're looking. And this may have been literally the first time Simon's ever seen Jesus. He may have heard of him. Maybe he hadn't even heard of him. But he sees Jesus. And can you imagine looking in the eyes of Christ during this moment? You know, seeing what you'd see with the, the sweat and the blood and this moment, and, and it's just surreal. And then you go take this beam from this quivering man who's near death, and it is, it is soaked with his sweat and his sticky blood, and now you're getting that on you as you carry that. In, in fact, when you read this, and it says, they passed uh, by, Simon of Cyrene was passing by, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The thing that, that many scholars will tell you is that the use of all the proper names indicates that these probably were members of the early church, that it was probably after this that Simon uh, became a follower of Christ and then led his family to be followers of Christ. And I'm thinking, of course. I mean, how could it be otherwise? You step into this moment and you're a part of it and you're seeing all this going on and you're looking at this guy. I mean, it's got to be a part of Simon going, I don't know what this guy did, but it does not deserve this. And Simon carries that with him, and that was probably an epic transformational moment in his life where he became uh, a follower of Christ uh, shortly thereafter. And so now he uh, bears this for Jesus, and we get to verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So Golgotha was this rock formation uh, that kind of looked like a skull, and it's where they would crucify uh, the people. Uh, we know that Golgotha was located just outside the city walls, but it was near the city because John records it for us in John 19. In John 19.20, this is what we read. Many of the Jews read the inscription. So this is a reference to King of the Jews inscription that was put over Jesus' head. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So we know he was crucified near the city is what John reminds us of. Now, who here has ever been to Israel? Anybody been to Israel before? Okay. Okay, handful of us, right? All right, so if you've been there, you've probably been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where they think probably Jesus was crucified. The problem, of course, now is if you go to Israel now, it looks nothing like a hilltop. I mean, the, like in my opinion too, the Catholics have so bedazzled it, it's not even recognizable. I mean, they're, it's just crazy. You go look at it, and you're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. Uh, but they tell you, hey, this is Golgotha. And you're like, if you say so, I don't know. Um, now, by contrast, if you go to uh, the garden tomb, that looks more like it probably would have been but may not be the actual place. And so, and the great thing with your phones today, and I do love this, is you can go to your phone right now and type in Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you can spell sepulchre, I can barely say it. So uh, if you can spell it, you can find uh, pictures of it and the same thing with the garden tomb and you can get pictures of that uh, even while we talk about it. So uh, this is where they take him. He's going there, verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh. So apparently there was a group of women, history says, uh, that felt really bad for these people that were being taken to die, that even though they were criminals, uh, they felt some compassion for them. And so these women would mix up this drink of wine and myrrh. And the myrrh apparently uh, mixed with the wine had a narcotic effect to take away the pain and to numb your senses a bit. And the women did this as a mercy for these guys who were about to be crucified. Uh, and, and it's interesting that when they offer this to him, he doesn't take it. So that is Jesus chose to endure the cup of God's wrath, full strength and undiluted. I just can't, there are things he does in this process that I just don't have a category for. And this, where he knows that physically as a man, he could numb some of the pain that he's about to experience. He denies that opportunity and he walks on and is willing to take it all. It's just, it's crazy. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, Mark is interesting. So Mark is unlike some of the other gospel writers. Mark is very fact-based as he writes. He just kind of tells the event and he moves on. Here's what happened, moving on. Here's what happened, moving on. Mark does a lot of that. Occasionally he'll stop for some detail. But here he gets to, I mean, what is perhaps almost the most cataclysmic event Let's not, I mean, the resurrection really is the big one. But you get to hear, and he just says, and they crucified him and divided his garments. And they just, they march. And I'm thinking, like, if you were asked to write about the crucifixion event, is that how you'd record it? They crucified him, and then they divided his garments. And then we went to, and then, and then, and like, that's not, I would have written the whole scene. Like, here's what's going on. And the soldiers were kicking up the dust. And there was all the, like, I would give all the details of smells and all. The, and Mark just kind of throws it out there for us. And maybe, uh, maybe if you were to ask Mark, he'd say, yeah, we don't need all that. I mean, <laughs> we just need the big part. This is what we need to know. I don't know. But here's what we also know. So they played a game for his garments as he's going up. And again, they've been mocking Jesus the whole time. And so now they're like, oh, who gets the king's robe, right? Like, let's, let's go for that. And so they, they play a game of chance for that where they cast lots uh, for it. Now, what they don't know is they're actually fulfilling a scripture that was written about 580 years prior to that in a psalm. And this psalm is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. In fact, if I were to ask you, do you know the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament? I don't know how many people could say that. And I don't know before I studied for the sermon if I could have gotten it. But I know what it is now. Uh, it is Psalm 22. So who, do, who said Psalm? Who knew Psalm 22? Okay, extra credit for you. Uh, all right. So this is what you read in Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. All right, let me explain that because it's a weird word. So a potsherd is a piece of broken pottery. That's what that means. So my strength is dried up like a piece of broken pottery. 
and my, stung, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." So scripture is really interesting in that you can read some of these things. And again, this was written almost 600 years earlier. And they would have read that, uh, a Psalm of David, and looked at that and gone, okay, all right, that's, that's interesting. Like they're trying to get into the moment, figure out what's going on. But what they don't realize is this is actually prophecy that's being written and will be f- fulfilled almost 600 years later. And now you read it and you're like, oh, wow. Like that is like to the letter talking about what was going on with Jesus in the moment of his crucifixion. Um, so here he is, they're hanging him, they're you know, playing a game for his clothing uh, and fulfilling this prophecy, which they're ignorant of. Verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And so uh, talk a little bit about how the hours were recorded in general. So their days started at 6 a.m. I don't know when your day starts, but their day started at 6 a.m., which meant then that 7 a.m. would have been the first hour. So then when you go forward, the third hour is 9 and then the sixth hour would be noon, all right? And those, those are the times that are going to be really important uh, as this goes forward. So uh, it seems here that Mark records for us that, uh, that they began to crucify him around 9 a.m. Now, John 19 says this. John 19, verses 14 through 16 says, Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. All right, so now we've gone back in time. This is when Pilate is trying Jesus before the Jews. So he says, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus. So now we have this, this moment where, uh, and it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on here, whether this 9 a.m. comment was the, um, like an editorial included later or uh, if this might have been like when the crucifixion was begun. Either way, it culminates at the 12 o'clock hour. That's when Jesus ends up on the cross at the 12 o'clock hour. Um, and so we also know this in verse 26. The inscription of the charge read against him was the king of the Jews. And so this is the crime for which he's being executed. This is what they put over him. This man was killed because he was the king of the Jews. Now, the reason Pilate put that up there is it was his one final dig at the Jewish leaders who hated to hear that. They hated the idea that Jesus was considered their king because they, they denied that wholeheartedly. Uh, but this was Pilate's one last shot at, you know, I don't like you guys anyway, and so I'm going to put this on there because I know you hate it. Uh, but ironically, it is absolutely true. That's exactly why he was killed because he is the king, and not just of the Jews, but all, all those who follow him in faith. And that's why he was executed. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And then if you will just bear with me, if you're looking at your scriptures, go down to the last part of this passage, verse 32. Verse 32, where people are shouting, the very end of that it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so in in Mark's account here, what you end up with is you end up with a thief on each side of Jesus that's being executed. Now, they're called robbers, uh, but robbing somebody wasn't actually um, a crime you could be killed for. And so they obviously did something more than just rob from people. And there is some speculation they might have also been involved in the insurrection that Barabbas was involved in. Uh, And so maybe they were fellow conspirators, but Barabbas got off maybe. I mean, we don't don't really know. Some of that's conjecture. all of that's conjecture. But the idea is this, that you got two guys who are killed uh, next to him. They're crucified next to him. But there's par- probably somebody in here sitting here going, yeah, 
but but didn't one of them kind of like not make fun of Jesus? Didn't want, like, and so what you're referring to is something that only Luke records. And this is what Luke records in Luke chapter 23. We'll put it up here for you. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All right, so first, how do we as believers that this is all real and true, how do we reconcile the idea that in Mark, you just got two guys that are insulting him. And according to Luke, you've got one of them that's not insulting him. And so the idea is this, and this is how you reconcile these things. And almost everything in scripture where you find stuff like that, these are complimentary passages, which means then probably the guy started off making fun of Jesus. But as he's surveying the scene and he's looking at Jesus, because make no mistake, when these criminals were being nailed to the cross, they weren't sitting there politely, you know, talking to the Romans. And, and like they would have been shouting things, saying things. Like, he probably got to the point where when he watched Jesus go through all this and saw his response and then sees his supporters that have come there, mostly the women, but others who are, who are watching him, looking at him, like, somewhere in the midst of this, it looks like the guy just has a change of heart. The problem, of course, for him is it's too late. And he knows he deserves what he, he's about to get. Like, he, he's, the death thing is, is a certain thing at this point. Hell is his next concern. Like he's just, he's going to be cast away from the presence of God forever. And he's sitting there going, I deserve this. But in this moment, he has a change of heart and he starts shutting down the other criminal that's yelling at him. He's going like, dude, we deserve this. This guy, he hasn't done anything wrong. He doesn't deserve this. We deserve it because of the stuff we did. But what has this guy done? And so in this moment, he turns to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you just throw a thought in my direction? Would you think, think about me a little bit when you step into your kingdom? And Jesus turns to him and says, you're going to be in that kingdom with me by the end of this day. So let me tell you why. I, this, this has always struck me. This passage has always struck me as a very powerful moment because the guy doesn't have a chance to say the sinner's prayer, right? He doesn't say, what are the words I need to say to make sure that you respond in such a way that I get to go to heaven? So, you know, like you're casting the, the Jesus spell. He doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't turn to him and go, mm, I would have saved you, but I can't get you baptized. Uh, and that's really important, right? So he doesn't do that. So the thing I love about this is it is legitimate, pure faith. In that moment, he just believes. Because that's why he says, when you come into your kingdom, that's an expression of, I believe you're about to step into a kingdom. I believe you're the one. And he's not making an appeal for salvation. The criminal isn't. He's not making a, an appeal for forgiveness. He just says, I get who you are now. And he, he, in some weird way, with this belief and this faith, Jesus turns to him and is like, you made it. You made it. I mean, how cool is that? Not just for him, for you and me. That, that you could be, and some of you feel this way, you could be the most vile person. You could be a filthy, sinful, horrible person, even hiding it from the rest of the world. But if you want to put your faith in Jesus, he will receive you in an instant into his kingdom. What a beautiful opportunity. What a beautiful picture for those of us that currently aren't in dire straits. 
So my encouragement would be respond in faith now so that you can find that forgiveness. And then unlike this man, you can spend the rest of your life living for Jesus. So just a beautiful moment. Excuse me, just a little bit. Anyway. <laughs> oh, man. The first service, I didn't do that. All right. Uh, moving on. Okay, so it says here, moving on to verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So you just have this horrible moment where now just everybody's just heaping it on Jesus. You know, oh, I thought you were everything. Where are you now? And so those who wanted him dead or they're mocking him. Passersby are mocking him. Uh, and probably it's just such a horrible scene. You just don't know how to respond. And so people are just joining in at this point where they're making fun of Jesus. And then I was thinking about this just in light of eternity. All these people who are mocking him are dead now. How surprised were they? They when after death they're before the judgment seat of Christ and they see him sitting on the throne. I mean, I cannot imagine that moment. And there's a part of me that would like to. Um, but it's just, it's just interesting to me. So here they are all mocking Jesus, uh, telling him to come down. And then it struck me with something else too here. Okay, so walk with me in this. So we tend to view whether or not God is in something by circumstances, right? So, and I, I would just say that as Christians, I think that's actually really unhealthy. It's really bad because if you think about, if we look over the history of Christendom, how, how much difficulty, pain, and loss, even loss of life have Christians endured because of their service to God and their love of the Lord? Right? I mean, if you were going to use circumstances to judge whether or not God's in something, you would look at history and go, man, God's not in that. Like the crucifixion, God's not in that. That's why so many people there were like, well, we know Deuteronomy says you're cursed by God, and so therefore you must be cursed by God. And he did bear a curse from God, which we're going to get to more fully here in just a second. But that's why people came to these conclusions. Here would be the thing I, I would say to you. Be very careful of that, because when John the Baptist was about to be beheaded, he sent messengers to Jesus to say, hey, we thought you were the one, but is there somebody else coming? Because things don't seem to be working out in life like we think that they should because we're following God. And then Job's friends who turned on him and were like, well, you wouldn't be going through all this suffering if you really love the Lord. The suffering is obviously an indication that you don't love God and he's judging you. That's why you're going through all this stuff. And if we start to do that, man, it's gonna mess you up as well. Let's do this. Let us judge whether or not something is of God by whether or not it aligns with his truth. Let's just do that. Because if you try to, and I use these words, if you try to read the tea leaves of God, right, where you're introducing some weird kind of, you know, fake spirituality into this thing, it's going to mess you up. Because we, uh, sad to say, we struggle to recognize both God's favor and the absence of it. And so let us just be people of truth. And then every now and then I know you kind of get a gut feel of whether he's in it or not. And I'll let you figure that out with the spirit. But just, let me just offer a warning. Just be careful with that. Let's use the word uh, to understand this. So now as we go forward, we're going to find that our acceptance is dependent on Jesus' rejection. Uh, verse 33. And so when the sixth hour had come, all right, six hours, so now it's 12 o'clock noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
Okay, so you know how I just said, be careful of trying to read into signs? This one you can read into. Uh, like, and you know, if you think about the people there, they, they've just crucified Jesus. Oh, I thought you were all big. And when they put him on the cross, there's a solar eclipse that occurs immediately. All right, that's going to mess you up if you're standing there watching this thing. You'll be like, hmm, I don't know, maybe we won't make fun anymore. Maybe we'll just stop here. And it stays that way until Jesus dies. So from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, there's a solar eclipse going on here. There is a darkness uh, over the land. And, the, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. All right, so this moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's our moment. That's the moment when Jesus is absorbing the most significant blow that mankind could ever have avoided. That this is the curse of God, the, the, the anger and the wrath of God poured out on sin in the person of Jesus in that moment. And it is the summation of all judgment in a moment experienced by Jesus. I, I, I mean, this is one of those blow your mind kind of things. How in the world could he have absorbed that? And he takes that upon himself so that we who respond in faith will not ever have to experience the judgment of God. Just this powerful moment where Jesus absorbs it and he feels it as the father turns his face uh, from Christ. Something Jesus has never known to that moment nor will ever experience again. And then they're like, the people are watching this going, what is going on here? And, And you get to this moment in verse 37, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, when you read that, you think, oh, okay. So he just cries it like, ah, but no, it wasn't that. John tells us that his loud cry was a comment that he made. And the words that Jesus spoke in that moment are recorded by John in John chapter 19. John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, the interesting thing about these stories is you combine them together. Mark tells us he shouted. John says he said. And so it sounds like this, that at that moment, Jesus got a quick drink of water so that he could shout before all of those present, it is finished is finished and then he dies so what's finished all sin has been paid for all sin now it's it's all sin for those who believe there's a qualifier but it is finished there's nothing more required to satisfy the demands of God you and I Don't have to work real hard to make God real happy with us so that we might, if possible, catch him on a good day and go into heaven. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus absorbed the whole blow so that you and I 
could step into paradise if we'd only believe. Like the thief on the cross, you don't have to have magic words, you don't have to be baptized. You just have to believe and you can be rescued from your sin. This is what is finished. And then after this, I love this. After this, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. That's cool. So here's something else you missed. Matthew records this. That at the moment of Jesus' death, he says, it is finished. He dies. An earthquake breaks out across the land. The tombs of dead people crack open and dead people walk out of those tombs, which I would love to have seen that. Maybe, maybe not. Um, But that would be, so all of this is going on and then the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. So if you think about this in history, the failure of one man at a tree shut the way off from mankind to God. The faithfulness and obedience of another man on this tree opens the way for mankind to approach God. So what one was unable to do, the other was able to do, and he purchases now a way to God. And that's what the tearing of the temple curtain meant, is that you had this curtain that prevented us, especially, we would have been Gentiles, oh my goodness, we wouldn't even been able to get that close in. But this idea that there's only certain people at certain times of the year that get access to God, and now this thing's ripped open saying, we can all have access to God through the high priest, Jesus Christ. Now we, through faith in him, can commune with God. You can talk to God right now and he'll listen and care. I mean, it's amazing. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. And yet through faith in Christ, we step into that. It's unbelievable. This is one of those, like as you read about it, especially if you'd been a Jewish person, you'd lose your mind. This is crazy stuff going on here that God would do this. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so uh, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had died, he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. And I love this moment too where this centurion has seen a lot of people die in crucifixion. Now to be fair, he just stood under a solar eclipse for the past few hours. So uh, I get it. I get it at this point. So when Jesus dies in this way and you know there was the stabbing in the side and all that kind of stuff, like this guy's like, oh my goodness, this was real. Like, I really believe you're going to see this centurion in heaven. I, I just feel, I feel like after this, he's like, who is this guy? I got to find out more about him. But like this idea that, that I, I don't know who this guy was, but he was clearly the son of God. That's what he's thinking there. And then in verse 40, and I love this too. There were also uh, women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and uh, Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Uh, Just another reminder that uh, women have just always been the backbone of taking care of the church, blessing the church. In fact, probably many of you would say your faith was strongly influenced by a a powerful woman in your life, like a mom or a grandma or something like that. Uh, But here are these women who even uh, in this darkest moment stayed there by Christ to minister and to help if they could. Uh, So now, where are we? Well, now we stand in the reality, the factual history of the curtain that was torn of of the Savior that was sacrificed. This isn't make-believe stuff in our religious work, and other people are reading their religious works, and they believe what they believe, and we believe. These are facts of history. So the question now is, what are you going to do with the facts of history? Either we're going to respond like the thief on the cross, and we're going to say, oh my goodness, you're the one, I get it now. I can't believe it. This is amazing. Would you think of me as you step into your paradise? Or we'll be like many of the Jewish leaders did after that event where they replaced the curtain so that they could close off again the way to God. My encouragement is 
believe. It's belief. Like the thief on the cross, it's not that hard. In fact, let's do this. Bow your heads with me. And let's talk to Jesus. Jesus, I am constantly amazed at what we see in the scripture and what you endured on our behalf. We literally can't even process what actually occurred in that moment. All we can do is just read the summation of it. But Lord, that you would do that for us. It's just unbelievable. Jesus, thank you. We believe. We believe you're the one. We believe you're the one who in our place took the full blast of the wrath of God so that we who respond in faith could find salvation. Please, Jesus, hear from our hearts right now, we believe. We believe that you are the savior of all mankind. We believe you took our punishment on the cross. Please hear from our hearts this morning. We place our full faith in you and ask that you would forgive us of all of our sin and receive us into your kingdom when we pass. In your holy name we pray, amen.